Amen, amen. You may be seated. And this is a peculiar thing that we do as followers of Jesus. It's peculiar in that we rally together every week and we sing about blood. We rejoice in blood because it's the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that washes us and makes us new. Isn't it amazing that you are forgiven of all of your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ? Oh my goodness, if there's anything worth celebrating, it's the fact that God has washed us and made us clean through the work of his son at the cross. I've shared uh, with you several times the story of Jim Elliott, a man who had a great heart and desire for the Aka Indians in Ecuador. The Akas were a group of Indians that were savages that were killing one another at such a rapid rate that they were headed for extinction. The Ecuadorian government tried to solve the problem by bringing in their military, but it led to even more bloodshed. And Jim Elliott knew the answer. He knew that Jesus is the only hope for these people. And so he rallied four of his friends and their families, learned the language, and went to Ecuador. You've heard the story of that fateful day on January the 8th of 1954, when those Five men were speared to death in the heart of the jungle, leaving behind each of their wives and children. But God stirred within the heart of Jim's wife to go into the jungle. Elizabeth Elliot with Rachel Saint and her, son, and her daughter Valerie went into the jungle and lived with the Akas. And over years of investment, they shared the gospel with these people. And Jesus changed their hearts. An amazing work takes place where these former savages become humble peacekeepers. Those who used to be filled with rage are now filled with love. Those who used to go out into the jungle to kill other tribes began sending out missionaries to preach the good news of Jesus. You see, when you meet Jesus, he changes everything about you. He makes you into a new kind of people. And that is what we see happening in Acts chapter 4. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. As a faith family, we're walking through the book of Acts together in this great historical narrative that the, the apostle or the, the disciple Luke has written for us. Acts is volume two of a two-volume set, the gospel of Luke being volume one, the book of Acts is volume two. We saw back in Acts chapter one where Jesus ascended back up into heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We get to Acts chapter two where the Holy Spirit has fallen at Pentecost where we see Peter stand up, preach the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. We go to Acts chapter three. And we see where Peter and John are going into the temple and they meet a lame beggar outside of the temple at the gate and they tell him, gold and silver we have not, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And immediately the man stands up and walks, leaping and jumping and praising God. He goes into the temple and Peter seizes this moment as an opportunity to preach the gospel again. And he stands up and preaches the resurrection of Christ. And as we see in Acts chapter 4, I believe it's verse 4, where thousands of more people come to faith in Jesus. 
But what's happening in Acts 4 is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Judaism, the Supreme Court, these 70 men plus the high priest, they don't like Peter and John preaching the resurrection. And so they tell them, hey, you got to stop preaching Jesus. And Peter and John tell them, yeah, that's not going to happen. We can't help but proclaim what we have seen and heard, they tell him. We can't stop. We won't stop. We've got a gospel to proclaim. We know the tomb is empty, and this changes everything. Peter and John knew what the empty tomb smelled like, and they had a gospel to proclaim. Then once they leave after being threatened by the Sanhedrin, they go gather with the church, and they begin to pray. The place where they're praying begins to shake. And then Luke begins to describe, at the end of Acts chapter 4, the culture of this early church. He shows us here, beginning with verse 32, what it looks like in the early church, these new followers of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, the scripture says this. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let's remember who these people are in the early church. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter laid the responsibility of Jesus' feet at the feet of these people. At these people who had rejected Jesus, he says, you are the ones who rejected the author of life. You are the ones who killed the Messiah. And what we see at the end of Acts 2 is 3,000 believe the gospel. He reemphasizes this again in Acts 3 verse 15. Peter is in the temple as he healed this lame beggar and he proclaims, you killed the author of life. You see, many of those who were there at the crucifixion or at, even at his, uh, at his trial were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But now they're followers of Jesus. The people who used to hate Jesus are now worshiping him. They love him. They're serving him and they're being transformed by him. They're being changed. They're a different kind of people. What we see here in Acts chapters one through four are these people who used to hate Jesus, who now love him. And they're gathered as the church. And I look across this room and I see the same thing. I see a group of people where me included, we all at some point were against Jesus. We were enemies of God, Paul tells us. But now we love him and he's changing us. He's making us into a new kind of people. You see, we're the ones who were against Jesus. You and I are responsible for the death of Christ. When you and I sin, we are the ones who are the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. Well, Kenneth, where do you get that? It's all throughout the New Testament. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he himself, 1 Peter 2, bore 
our sins in his body on the cross. That Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3. That he laid down his life for us, 1 John 3. You see, you and I are responsible for the death of Christ, and yet we've heard the gospel, we've trusted in Jesus, and he's changed our hearts. And he's put the Holy Spirit within us, and the Spirit begins to work in us. He's changing us. He's changing you. You, From one degree of glory to another, you're being transformed by the Spirit of God. It is his mission, Romans 8, 29, to conform you into the image of his Son. It is the mission of God to make you like Jesus. And so what happens is, as a follower of Christ, the sins that you used to commit before you, you knew Jesus, they're not as much fun anymore. You begin to feel conviction of sin, and you're like, well, I don't want to do that anymore. What's happened? The Spirit. He's taken up residence in your heart and your, in your life. He's changing you. But what we see happening in Acts 4 is the Holy Spirit that fell at Pentecost, Acts 2, is working in the hearts of this early church where those who used to crucify are now being changed. They look radically different. And what I want you and I to see this morning in the text are these four signs, these four marks that you are a new kind of people. I want you to see it right here in the text. I want you to see what this looks like practically. I want you to see first sign. The first sign that you're becoming a new kind of people is we pursue gospel unity. We pursue gospel unity. Look at verse 32. We see the early church was marked as being one heart and mind. And did you see who it was in verse 32? It's the entire group. Do you know how hard it is to get an entire group to agree on anything? Some of you can't agree on a restaurant on date night. I mean, can you imagine this early church? They are united together. They're of one heart and one mind. They're together as one. There is blessing when there is a group of people who are united together as one. King David knew this in Psalm 133, verse 1. He said, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And all parents with multiple children said together, amen. There is something about when your kids get along, you're just like, oh, this is so good. Well, what is that? Well, as redeemed image bearers, we have the desire within us for unity. We like peace in our relationships. Why? Well, it begins with God himself who is unified. We see throughout the scriptures that we as followers of Christ worship one God. Here's one God that we love and follow and obey. We see this in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship one God who reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. We worship one God who reveals himself in the triune fashion, these three persons within one God. And yet within the three persons of the Godhead, there's unity, there's harmony. The son doesn't go to the spirit and say, we've got to take down the father. He's a dictator. Never happens. We never see the father and the spirit saying, the son is getting really annoying. 
We're tired of Jesus. Let's get rid of him. Never happens. There's perfect unity within the triune God. And so as an image bearer who's made to reflect what God is like, God has put the desire for unity in your heart. Because you desire unity as God himself is unified. And if there's any place where we as followers of Jesus seek to imitate God, As dearly loved children, it's within his church. We see this within uh, Paul. He admonished the Philippian church in Philippians 2. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Paul told the Ephesian church, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, watch this, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And some of you wives, I'm seeing some nodding of some heads. Okay. That's part of being a follower of Jesus is that we're together as a family. We're different. We don't all agree on tertiary things, but we agree on what matters most. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He unites us together as one. And so we are a people who show benefit of the doubt to one another. We're gracious towards one another. Someone says something that's hurtful, we're going to say, hmm, that stung a little bit. Let me address that with you. Hey, I love you. I don't think you meant to hurt me by what you just said. Can we just work that out real quick? Uh, there's a, I was on a, a retreat years ago with several pastors from across the country from different denominations and, and backgrounds and contexts. And this is a time in which there was rising racial tension in our country. And this African-American pastor made this comment to the white pastors He said, we need to learn to listen to one another. I've got to listen to you, and you've got to listen to me. And I said, man, that was a word for me at that moment. This week, I had uh, lunch with an African-American pastor from right here in our city. And it was just so good to sit down and laugh and tell stories. And I want to tell him, man, I want to dance. Because when you dance, you're going to accidentally step on somebody's toes. And when it does, you say, ooh, that hurt. All right, hey, let's address that. And then let's keep dancing. You see, as followers of Jesus, we dance with one another as brothers and sisters. And there's times in which we're going to step on each other's toes. And you're like, ooh, that hurts. Hey, okay, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Let's dance better. And you mend the relationship, and then you keep dancing. What's happening in Acts 4 is that they are of one mind, one heart. They're together as one. And so for us as followers of Jesus within the local church, we pursue unity together. And as the spirit is maturing us, we become those who stop the gossip when it takes place. We don't spread it. If someone's trying to create division in the church, we, oh, that's not going to be us. Hey, let's address that. We're not going to be people who are divisive. That's not us. Whenever someone seeks to bring contention or division, we, the mature say, hey, uh-uh, we're not doing that. Hey, we're together for the gospel. And while you may have lots of great opinions, 
What matters most is the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Ephesians 4. That we're together for the gospel. We are united around what's most important, about what's essential. You see, we are peacemakers. We're not those who stir up conflict or slander or pick fights or cause dissension. No, we humble ourselves. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, we consider others more important than ourselves. We're looking not for our own interests, but also the interest of others. We pursue unity in relationships. We give people the benefit of the doubts. We show grace and patience and forbearance with one another. And so some of you are sitting here thinking, but preacher, don't you know about this one person in my life who I would just love in the name of Jesus to punch him in the face? Can I say I've been there? I was a student pastor for a long time. (laughs) Keep praying for Corey, y'all. I know that feeling. And yet as mature followers of Jesus, that's not going to be us. We're patient. We're gracious. We're kind. We display the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not our power. It's the Spirit's power within us. There's a, I'm, there's a group of guys I meet with regularly. And several months ago, one of the guys made the comment about how someone at his workplace said something that was offensive. And he was celebrating with us that he didn't hit him in the face. And I was like, dude, I'm so stinking proud of you. That is awesome. That's a win. This is what we do as followers of Jesus. We're maturing. We're growing in grace. Hear me on this. The church isn't perfect. We're being perfected. We will be perfect at the resurrection on the last day. That's coming. There's coming a day in which you're not going to fight sin anymore. Okay, there's coming a day in which you and I are not going to be divided over politics or any of of the tertiary silly things of this world But even as that day is promised to be coming, and it's coming soon, we are a people who pursue unity within the church. We see a God who pursues diversity, and he brings unity, and we see it even in Revelation 5 and 7, where God is promising and pointing forward to a future day where people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are going to be gathered together as one, and we've all been purchased by the blood of Christ. A mark, a sign that you are being made into a new kind of people is that you pursue unity. But the second thing we see in the text is that we open our hands with gospel generosity. Look at verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. For the early church, they were not greedy or selfish with their possessions or property, but rather they were open-handed. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Luke then gives an example of gospel generosity in verses 36 and 37 with a guy named Barnabas who sold a field he owned and gave all the money to the church. What we see is a people who are voluntarily, happily, willingly, gladly, freely giving of their resources. There's no coercion, there's no manipulation, there's no pressure from the apostles like, y'all need to hurry up and give. Not happening here. The people are so overwhelmed by the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit within them, the grace of God was upon them, and they're just generous. Like, oh my goodness, God has been so generous towards me in the gospel, I want to do the same. Question, do you find it really hard to give up your possessions? 
Do you find it hard to give up your money? You see, there's a powerful relationship between how you view money and your relationship with God. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew chapter 6, you will either hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. You see, everyone worships something. Okay, There's no such thing as atheists. Everybody worships something. You can't love Jesus and money. You can't have two kings sitting on one throne. And on every heart of every human is a throne. And the question is, who is sitting upon it? Jesus will not give his glory to another. He will not share the throne with anybody or anything. As followers of Jesus, we are those who say, Jesus, you can sit on the throne of my heart and everything else is second place and it's not even close. And you see what happens when you do that, though? When Jesus has first place in your heart, he then begins to order everything else. He takes all the chaos and confusion and he brings order, truth, goodness, and beauty. You see, in Mark 10, Jesus is approached by a wealthy man who says, hey, good teacher, um, how can I inherit eternal life? Now, this guy's a great prospect for Jesus. He's going to join the band, to be a part of the disciples. He's wealthy, so he can financially support Jesus' ministry. This is a great opportunity for a guy like this to join Jesus and his group. And I'm like, let's go. Except Jesus saw something else. In Mark 10, 20, it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Don't miss that. Jesus is about to drop some really hard truth on this guy. But you see the text says, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You see, to the path to this man's heart was through his wallet. And Jesus was testing, which are you going to love more? Me or your money? Me or your possessions? Jesus is laying out a litmus test to see what's the condition of your heart. So let me ask you. Jesus approaches you and says, give up all of your possessions. Sell them and give them all to the poor and then come follow me. Would you do it? If you are not willing to give up your money and possessions to follow Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. That's a hard truth that Jesus is bringing here, but he's trying to make himself abundantly clear. You can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot here on earth and think you can be faithful. He wants all of your heart. The early church here is marked by people who are just generous. They're just like, man, what can I sell? How can I help the poor? Let's make sure we can keep this thing going. And there's just a, a culture of generosity where people are like, man, I want to get in on this. I want to, I want to bless those who don't have anything. I want to keep the, the, this mission moving forward with my resources. You see, this rich young ruler, he went away sad because he had a ton of possessions. His money and his stuff was more important than Christ. And then Jesus told his disciples how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Are you willing to open up your hands with gospel generosity?
You see, the gospel transforms the selfish into the selfless. The gospel turns us away from temporary idols like greed and money and possessions and power. And then God gives us something better. He gives us himself. He gives us his son, who is far more satisfying than the temporary um, euphoria of money or possessions or stuff. So what the gospel does is it sets us free from greed and then gives us something far more satisfying, namely Jesus. If you sense in your heart today even a whiff of selfishness, I want to invite you right now, just in your heart, Lord, I want to turn from this. I want to bring this part of my heart, my love for money, my love for stuff. And God, I want to offer it to you and say, God, here, you can have it open-handed. I'm not going to white knuckle grip onto it. You can have it. Lord, it's yours. It's not mine. Everything I have comes from you. And so, Lord, as a good steward, as a manager of what you've entrusted to me during this brief temporary life, and so I take my last breath and I'm catapulted into eternity, God, I want to be found faithful. So I'm taking my hands and my heart's grip on stuff, and Lord, I'm taking that off the throne. And Jesus, you're going to have first place. You see, God is generous. He's not stingy. He doesn't give leftovers. He doesn't give you a small tip saying, I'm just going to give you a little bit. He gives you his best, his one and only son. If you want to know the generosity of God, look at the cross. Look at where God gave you himself. He said, see, if there's anybody who had a right to be selfish, it was Jesus. If anybody had a right to say, all of this is mine, and you guys, I might let you have a little bit of it. No, 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 no. He gives all of it up. He becomes poor, poor family, takes on flesh, identifies with your struggles. He's tempted in every way that you are, yet without sin. And as he goes through this life, he goes to the cross where he offers himself as the best offering. You see, God sacrificing himself for you. Oh, isn't the gospel amazing? That God is so generous in giving us his one and only son. And the reality of the generosity of God is so overwhelming to the church in Acts 4. They're just like, man, what can I sell? What can I get rid of? Man, I want to be a blessing. I want to see the church thrive. I'm going to do whatever I can to see the gospel go forth. And that's what's happening here in the text. And that is a sign that you're a new kind of people. The third sign we see in the text is that we see that it is to point to Jesus through gospel preaching. In verse 33, it says, With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. You see, the apostles couldn't get over the resurrection. They could not believe what they had seen. They realized that this is true. Jesus defeated death, and this changes everything. And as those who are followers of Christ, it's Because of the apostles' boldness to preach the gospel, and as we get to Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, oh my goodness, we're going to see the the church spread because of persecution, and all of a sudden, like a big boulder that's dropped in the middle of a pond and a huge explosion, water spreads everywhere. Well, as the stones fall upon Stephen, there's an explosion of the church spreading out far and wide taking the gospel to the nations. And it's this preaching of the gospel that changes everything throughout human history. 
It's amazing what God has done through this gospel. The gospel changes everything. And the gospel is what was on the forefront of the apostles' mind, lips, and hearts. Question, who are you sharing the gospel with? If you find that you're not talking about Jesus a lot, it's because you do not love him enough. We love to talk about what we love. I sit down with grandparents. All of a sudden, they pull out their phone and they show me pictures. I sit down with an Alabama fan and all of a sudden, I hear about championships. I sit down with an Auburn fan and I hear about the basketball team. And I sit down with someone who goes to a school and I hear all about their school. We love to talk about what we love. Question, who do you love the most? And what you love the most is what you talk about. You love talking about things that are close and near and dear to your heart. Well, for the early church, they just love talking about the gospel. They can't believe what Jesus had done for them. They're blown away by the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. And so if you find yourself being quiet, silent about the gospel, you need to examine your heart and say, okay, Lord, what am I loving more than you? If you're quiet about your faith, then your love for Jesus is too little. We've got to take this love for Christ and ask God, would you fan into flame a white-hot passion for you? I want to eagerly tell people about Jesus. I want others to experience what I've experienced. When... um, We first moved here as a family uh, 11 years ago. Uh, We heard about this restaurant here in our community, and I I couldn't find it. It was way out of the way, and I I, I was like, I don't even know where this thing exists. People kept talking about it. And eventually, people talked about it so much, eventually I was like, oh, we found it. And we went out, and it was a great restaurant, great experience. I thought, okay. You see, for people, they had tasted something. And they wanted others to have a taste of it too. And even though it was inconvenient and it wasn't easy, they wanted others to get in on this. You and I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've tasted the sweetness of his word, that it's sweeter than honey. We've experienced the forgiveness of God for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We're beholding the king who woke us up and gives us life and breath, and we know his name, and he knows ours. And he lives inside of us both now and forever. He's adopted us into his family. He's promised, I'm going to be with you, and I'm never going to divorce you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be with you when you go to math class, when you're on the ball field, when you're in the boardroom, when you're at home in the living room, wherever you are, I'm going to be with you right there. I'm going to give you strength and grace. And when the time comes for you to take your last breath, guess what? You get to come be with me. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And so not even death has sway over you anymore. And all of this is accomplished by Jesus. How can we keep this to ourselves? May you and I ask the Lord to give us an even greater love for him because as your love for Jesus increases, so does your desire to preach the gospel. The fourth sign that you're a new kind of people is that you bless people with gospel encouragement. In verse 36, Joseph, the one the apostles call Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. Here is a guy 
who is so good at encouraging people, they change his name to encouragement. He's so good at it. Just as Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, and just as Jesus changed James and John and gives them a nickname, Sons of Thunder, He's renaming them. He's speaking life and direction into them that they're going to create great noise and damage for the sake of the kingdom. Here the apostles see this guy, Joseph, and all he's doing is just constantly encouraging people. And you see, it's amazing about encouragement. Y'all, I've yet to meet someone who's overly encouraged. I've yet to meet someone say, hey, that's enough encouragement. I need you to stop. Every person you meet is in desperate need of encouragement. Every single person you meet especially in a day and age in which anxiety is high, fear is high, uncertainty about the culture and the world in which we live. As it seems like the world is falling apart and people feel deep down this uncertainty. As teenagers, as you wrestle through insecurity, wrestling through, gosh, I don't even know how I'm gonna get through this day. Can I say encouragement is an opportunity in which you get to speak life into someone. You know what's amazing about encouragement? It's completely free. It didn't cost you a dollar to go to someone and to speak words of life and encouragement. And may that be true of us. And for us as followers of Jesus, as a God who has encouraged us in the gospel, a God who loves to speak words of affirmation to us through his word, we get to go and do the same. That you have the ability to stiffen the spines of those who are weak. For those who are faint-hearted, you get to encourage them and champion them to keep going and following hard after Christ. You get to leverage your words that could very well be pivotal in your life in pointing people to Jesus. It's amazing. Right now, you've got people in your life where a spirit-given word of encouragement is going to change their life. And it's amazing to think about. For some of you right now, you can go through the Rolodex of your memories of people in your life who said something kind at just the right time, and it changed you. It changed your perspective. It gave you strength and encouragement. And you thought, okay, I can get through this. I've told you the story about how Christy and I have had a season in which we were really struggling, not only in our marriage, but in our family. And we were living back in Kentucky, and we were just going through a really hard season. And a friend of mine walked up to me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Kenneth, God is showing you favor. And I thought, sure doesn't feel like it. And he began to speak words of life and encouragement. And as he stood there and as he spoke to me, I wept. Like a little baby because I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to be able to make it now. And it meant so much to us that we named our youngest son after him. That word of encouragement changed the trajectory of my walk with Jesus in my relationship with my wife. And all it took was just a few moments of speaking words of life. As you abide in Christ, as you leverage your relationships, look for opportunities to speak words of encouragement. Handwritten note, a phone call. Texts are cool, but y'all, let's put that away and let's get here. You put your hand on someone's shoulder and you just look them square in the eye and say, my goodness, I've seen Jesus all over your life and let me show you where I see him at work. Hey, thank you for all you do in these ways and you be specific. Name these things. And these are ways I'm saying, oh my goodness, look at all the ways God's working in your life. I'm so proud of you. You see, what we see happening here in Acts 4 is a new kind of culture of a church 
that it's a culture of grace. That's what we see in the text, is great grace is upon them. The Spirit is working as they're pursuing unity, as they're encouraging one another, as they're preaching the gospel, as they're generous with their resources. It's a new kind of culture. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? And it's this, give your life to investing in people who will impact their world for Jesus. Our mission as a church is to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. We get this from the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We give ourselves to people. We want to see people know Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus. And so we invest our lives into people who will then go and impact their world for Jesus. And I want to invite you, as we see what's happening here in Acts 4, is that you become someone who is doubling down your life on the local church. We're in a day and age in which the the church is not very popular. It's losing a lot of persuasion and influence in our culture. And yet, as messed up as the church can be, and boy, we can be messy, Jesus still loves his bride. He gave his blood for his wife. You have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. And not even the gates of hell will defeat the church. And we are part of a movement that will remain forever and ever. We're a part of a kingdom that is firmly established. And so as we look forward to the day when Christ returns, calls us home, faith becomes sight, I want to invite you to give your life to something bigger than you and something that's going to last a lot longer than your brief temporary life. And it's the church. Investing in people who will impact their world for the glory of Jesus Christ.